Welcome. This is the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast with host Rob Giannino, where we have great conversation with really awesome experts from within the fly fishing community. You see, the fly fishing lifestyle is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us. Check out flyfishingjourneys.com for more podcasts, and please subscribe on your favorite podcast player. Here's your host, Rob Giannino. On this edition of the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast, we have a fun and lively conversation with Bob Shannon and Parker Wright of the Fly Rod Shop in Stowe, Vermont. We dial in on both the DIY and guided fishing opportunities in the beautiful landscapes of northern Vermont. They share how what would typically be a winter ski destination has become a year-round destination with tons of outdoor activities. Coincidentally, I went to college in the area and taught at both Stowe and Smuggler's Notch, so the conversation brought back lots of nostalgic memories. We had a spirited chat about the trout creel limits, and to be clear, as of January 1st of this year, Vermont Fish and Wildlife has reduced the trout creel limits to 8 in rivers and streams and 6 in lake and ponds. At the recording of this conversation, it was 12. I want to commend Bob for his time served on the VF&W board in both his balanced approach and his advocacy for lowering the total creel limits. I'm just glad that Vermont finally decided to lower that number. A strong case could be made for further protections for the brook trout as a wild native fish over the rainbows and browns that are both non-native and stocked. Have you checked out all the cool stuff Norvice has going on? They just released a Stormtrooper white and black tying vise. With only 10 made, it's a limited edition product, so check quickly as it may not be available when you're hearing this. Check out nor-vice.com for more information as well as their entire show calendar. Thanks to Art Hofford of Bissell Insurance for supplying us with a giant box of beautiful blue neoprene reel covers. Come by the Fly Fishing Journeys podcast booth at the Edison, Denver, Lancaster, or Marlboro Fly Fishing Show and ask for your free Bissell Insurance reel cover. Check out their industry-specific insurance products at BisselInsuranceAgency.com. The show season kicks off with the Edison, New Jersey show January 28th to 30th, 2022. There are six shows as part of the Fly Fishing Show Nationwide Tour. For dates, location, and programs, check out flyfishingshow.com. All right, thanks, Josh, and I'm excited to be here at the Fly Rod Shop in Stowe, Vermont, and we're very excited to have both Bob Shannon and Parker Wright on our podcast. Guys, thanks for being on our podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Amazing day we started, Bob, on the mountain at Mansfield Mountain, Stowe, Vermont. Thanks for taking me out doing a little bit of skiing today. You're welcome. Great way to start the day. It was fun. Yeah, here we are in Stowe. So we figured we'd come up and do a little skiing and then do a podcast at the same time, because here you are. The fly rod shop. Some would say, Bob, you have a fly rod shop in the middle of what many would consider a ski town. Tell us about that. Well, Stowe is affectionately referred to as the ski capital of the east, but we call the fly rod shop the fly fishing capital of the east. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. I actually started in Stowe. I moved here to ski, Mm -hmm. Um, worked on the ski patrol for three winters, and then decided to spend a summer here. From that point on, it was pretty much year-round in Stowe. So that's awesome, Bob. Where did you move from? Lake Placid. Oh, you grew up in Lake Placid, New York? No, I went to school at Paul Smith's College. So the year after I graduated, I worked in Lake Placid, skied there for the winter, 
and then decided to try Stowe. Came over here for the ski season, and then the second year I worked on the mountain on the ski patrol. Where did you grow up? Just outside of central New York, basically, just okay. outside of Syracuse. Oh, okay, okay, so you're from that area. Yeah, so I lived there, did a lot of fishing in the Pulaski area, central New York area, and then I went to college at Paul Smith's, decided to spend a year there, and then a couple of friends of mine came over to Stowe and said, if you're going to ski next year, try it. And so you came over originally to be a patrol. Yeah, and I didn't really plan on spending the summers here. Lake Placid's pretty nice. Yeah. So I worked there through the 80s. So I worked at Lake Placid during the Olympics. So I was pretty content to stay. And then when I came over here, I was like, well, Stowe's pretty hot. My dad was actually at those Olympics, the Winter Olympics of 1980. Yeah. Lake Placid, New York. Must have been a pretty cool time. Yeah, it was awesome. Working at Paul Smith's, they basically set us up with work. So my job was with ABC Sports working in one of the concessions. And then when you worked there, they basically gave you tickets to the events. That's cool. Yeah, it was great. Well, let's tie Parker in here. Parker, how long have you been here with the Fly Rod Shop? I've been with the Fly Rod Shop for eight or nine years now. Wow. I grew up in Waterbury, lived in Vermont my whole life, and one day I was coming in buying flies off of Bob, and he's like, hey, do you want a job here? I was like, yeah, of, of course, course I, do. I do. Yeah, why wouldn't I? So he started out washing boats. Nice. Cleaning Professional gear. boat washer. <laughs> yeah. You got to earn your keep. You got to earn your spot. Yep. And then from boat washer, you went to in charge of selling flies and in charge of the shop and running the place. And Yep. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is we have a pretty popular program in the summer. We run a lot of kids' camps. Okay. So the first couple of years, Parker was here. He was in high school. He was a summer employee. Helped us tremendously with the kids' programs. And you can pretty quickly tell, you know, when somebody's interacting with people. And when Parker got out of high school, he decided to work here full-time. That's awesome. And to your point, you know, now, fortunately for me, he, he's running the place. <laughs> well, it's good to have somebody that you can trust to do that, you know, because I know you're traveling around the world. You're guiding a lot in New York. I just want to talk about how nostalgic today was for me to come up here to Stowe again, because I actually spent some of my college days, which we've talked about here in Stowe. I was an instructor at the mountain. I went to school not too far from here at Johnson for a couple of years. So to be back in Stowe, to be up on the mountain skiing with you where I taught and then to be here at the fly shop to check out your shop and have this conversation, Bob. I just want to thank you for what a wonderful day it was because it brought back so many incredible memories for me. Great. I'm glad that that was part of it. And coincidentally, I teach up at Johnson State College. That's right. So Let's talk about that for a minute because you're actually teaching a fly fishing course. So the program started originally through an outdoor environmental science program at the college, and then eventually it evolved into a program that Johnson's pretty well known for now. It's their outdoor ed program. As part of that program, the students are required to take a variety of different outdoor activities, canoeing, kayaking, rock climbing, winter survival, fly fishing. Tell me about the curriculum. The curriculum that I specifically teach is a chance for most of the students are pretty much beginners in the fly fishing world. We start out with a basic introduction to equipment, and then we get into some aquatic river science, a little bit of stream entomology. So we'll actually take them out on the river. And a big part of the class is getting them out on the water. So we'll do a aquatic insect identification, bring them back to the shop, and then tie flies. Let them take that fly out and hopefully catch a fish. That's cool. About 50% of the program is going to be spent on the river. 
Now, do you do casting instruction? Yeah, well, actually, here at the shop, we have a 100 by 40 foot casting pond on site. The students will come here and do some casting instruction. So we'll focus on a couple of basic casting techniques, which would be a roll cast and a false cast. So that'll be probably the class just prior to going to the river. And then we'll bring them into the shop for the last two days of the class, suit them up in waders, and then take them out and do a full day on the water. How fun! Yeah, college is supposed to be fun. I, you know, I was so into skiing back in the day that I, I was into fly fishing a little bit, but I really didn't get dialed into fly fishing until my late 20s. But when I was 18, 19, 20, when I was here in the Stowe in the Johnson area, I was just a ski bum. It's all I was thinking about. So I don't remember seeing that in the curriculum, but that's so cool. Yeah, it's a great it's a great class. And one thing that's pretty cool for the shop and for me is that we've had at least a half dozen young people that have finished that program and then over the period of their career going out into the working world have come back and actually told me that they've started a guide service. And then he like Parker over here. Yeah, exactly. Parker skipped a step. Uh, yeah. okay. <laughs> he went right to the shop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. Well, well, that's good to know that that's happening over in Johnson. And, uh, you know, we do want to get into some of the fishing opportunities around, whether it be Stowe or northern Vermont. For those who don't know, who are listening, where is Stowe, Vermont? It's in northern Vermont. How far from the Canadian border? 45 minutes. Yeah, not far. And then north of, say, Boston, we're probably three to four hours. Yeah, it's really close. Three hours is definitely an easy, yep. you know, Friday night drive. We want to get into some of the fishing opportunities up here in northern Vermont, kind of teach this maybe some spots, some tips, some tactics. Maybe for some who wants to come up and do it yourself, or maybe some wants to come have a guided trip. You offer our guided trips up here? Yeah, hundreds. Yeah, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And then I know you also are an expert in that whole kind of Pulaski, uh, salmon and steel, uh, steelhead fishing in and around the Ontario area. So Correct. we want to talk a bit about that as well. But why don't we first start here with some of the fishing opportunities around Stowe. Like where can somebody come up? Would you consider it a destination area? Would somebody come as a destination fishing trip? Yeah. I mean, Stowe has a lot to offer anyway, you know, summer recreation wise. So if you were to base yourself in Stowe, we're about 45 minutes from Burlington. I would say within a half an hour of the shop is some of the better fishing opportunities Vermont has to offer. Mm. So the Lamoille River is located 10 miles north of our shop, and the Winooski River is about 8 miles south. And those are two of the main watersheds in the state. Okay. Feeding into those are, because we're so high in elevation, Mount Mansfield is the highest peak in the state. That's where we skied today on Mount Mansfield. So the drainage coming off the mountain provides all of those larger rivers with cold water influence throughout the summer. So anybody that wanted to come up here and fish, you could spend 10 minutes to a half an hour's drive out of Stowe, and you would have seven to nine tributaries and two major rivers to fish. And in the spring and fall, both the Winooski and Lamoille are drift boat fishable. Okay. So if somebody wanted to bring up a canoe, kayak, you know, an inflatable raft, you know, we can show you some easy access points. You can shuttle? We haven't done it in the okay. past just because there hasn't been a big demand for it yeah but um we do offer a drift boat service we have three 
Well, we have two high drift boats and a inflatable. Okay, cool. Do you work any of the drift boats, Parker? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit of trout fishing. Then we do a lot of pike fishing a little bit further south from our area. Okay. Do you guide much? Not as much as I did two to three years ago. I'm in the shop a lot more. Yeah. But I still, I've got clients that they come up every year and want to do a trip with me. So I take them out and I pick up some of the overflow too. Now, if you were to head out, would you prefer the Winooski, the Lamoille? Where would you go for trout? If I were to go out, I'd be fishing the Winooski. The Winooski? I'm on the Lamoille. You're on the Lamoille. So we got both rivers covered there. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm kicking Parker off the Lamoille. Yeah, we won't have to run into each other <laughs> yes. on our days off. Well, let's, why don't we start with the Winooski? Where would you go? Like, what town would you base out of? I mean, really from, I would say, the Bolton area, almost as far down as Richmond, upstream to the headwaters, which are northeast of Montpelier. There's really good trout water throughout that entire section of river, and there's really good access throughout the entire river. So it's just one of those rivers where you can kind of pull off anywhere. Yeah, you've got Route 2 um, that runs along a large portion of the Winooski River, and that's super accessible. There's a lot of parking. And here's something else that we get asked all the time in the summer that people are going to really appreciate is that Vermont has very limited basically there's no private sections Mm -hmm. so by being a license holder in the state of vermont you have the right to fish the rivers so you don't have to worry about posted land you have to respect posted land and not cross it to get to the river but once you're in the watershed going back to vermont's constitution basically the rivers are protected for fishermen in the state so you can basically walk the watershed you know on the bank of the river yeah we tell people if you're looking for a good access point bridge to bridge if it's a big watershed and you've got you know eight miles of water from bridge to bridge then you're not going to wade it but you can wade into that section and then access it back out again yeah I think a lot of people that come into Vermont are, quite frankly, surprised that they have all that public domain. Yep. So that's a huge resource for us in the state. So in the the Winooski, Parker, what would you expect to catch in there? What are some of the fish? I mean, it's primarily rainbows and browns in the mid and lower sections. The further up you go, you start to run into some brook trout as well. But it's a combination of all three, both wild and stocked fish. Okay. What type of tactics would you use if you wanted to attack that river i mean it varies from depending on the time of the year but early season this kind of goes for most of the trout fishing in vermont you're going to be fishing a lot more streamers and nymphs between april and mid-may and then come mid-may once the water levels have dropped and the water temperatures have warmed up you start seeing some dry fly activity and that kind of carries us into early july and then the dry fly fishing stays good gets better in the fall and then you can catch fish on all three methods so it's like a typical northeast is it like a freestone or what would you consider yeah. a freestone yeah streamers and nymphs in the spring moving into the dry flies and yep. you can i'm sure you can continue to use streamers in the summer yeah for the most part you know if the water gets really low you might start scaring some fish with those but primarily yeah you can get away with streamers the majority of the season give them some meat get into a little bigger fish yeah Absolutely. The other thing the Winooski has to offer, which is there's one of several sections in the state, but that's one of our trophy sections. So the section of, I think it's 2.2 or 2.4 miles from Waterbury, village of Waterbury. There's a bridge on Route 2 in south that's stocked with trophy trout through the state. Plus it has a limited creel. So the people that fish there are typically catching bigger fish. So people that want to target bigger fish would want to focus on that section. That's in the Bolton area? Where What section is it? Uh, Waterbury Village. Waterbury. Oh, right through Waterbury. Yeah. So when you get off exit 10, 
yep. off of the interstate. Take a left. You're right there. Yeah, I know where that is, yeah. The state started that trophy trout management program a few years ago. It's probably been close to a decade now. But the section in Waterbury is, like Parker said, it has really great access along Route 2. And it's right in the middle of the river, the watershed. Now, one of the things that I'm going to really spend a lot more time doing this uh, this year, Parker, is Euro-nymphing. Yep. Bob is telling me that you have some experience Euro-nymphing. Yeah, absolutely. That's I started doing that, I don't know, probably four or five years ago. No kidding. It's super effective in the right conditions, right time of the year. There's, yep. You can't beat it. And in these types of waters, whether it be the Winooski and Lamoille, Euro-nymphing would be a good tactic? Yeah, absolutely. You know, primarily pocket water, which one of the reasons I personally like the Winooski is there's certain sections of that river that are just pocket water as far as you can see. Fun, huh? And that's where Euronymphing comes into play big time. Now, what would you consider a good setup for Euronymphing? I like a 10-foot three-weight. The rod I'm fishing with right now, it's a Douglas DXF 10-foot three-weight. Yeah, it's a pretty killer rod for fishing that way. It was specifically designed for Euronymphing? Yeah, yep. Nice. Do you have people coming into the shop and asking about yeah. these styles of rods, this tactic? Yeah, I would say in the past two years, it's definitely become more popular. Yeah, and there's right, yeah. a m- much larger interest in Euronymphing than there was five or six years ago. Okay, cool. So you get a 10-foot three-weight, and then how would you set up that leader? Typically, I mean, you're looking probably between a 12- and 18-foot leader, depending on the water depth and where you're fishing. Generally, you're not going to have any fly line off the tip of your rod. You know, long leader, often pretty light tippet, a couple flies. One's typically a little bit heavier, you know, than your standard. fly. Yeah, exactly. I like fishing jig style flies so the hook rides up, less likely to get hung up on the bottom, which is always helpful. Pertigons? Yeah, n- not a ton of those, but... Not a- not around here as much. No, it's not super popular. There are guys around that use those and they catch fish. I think it's just a lack of... I don't know, maybe... You Exposure? Know, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of guys that don't know what those yeah, are. Yeah, we're not in Spain. Right. We're in northern yeah. Vermont. <laughs> well, that's cool, though. So you're using like a tungsten bead almost, like yeah. a point fly, and then running a second off the back? Yeah. Well, that's cool. So that's kind of the Winooski. That gives us some good coverage there. For the Lamoille, Bob, where <laughs> would you go? Tell us a bit about the Lamoille, where it kind of starts, where it headwaters, where it goes. All right, so it's similar to the Winooski in size. Um, it's about probably a third the drainage, so it's not a big river during high water events. Just above Hardwick is mostly brook trout, some spattering of rainbows, not mountain stream, but a much smaller river up there. Once it gets past the village of Wolcott, flowing towards Lake Champlain, so it's an east-west flow. Okay. Similar to the Winooski, the midsection is probably the most productive, which would be from the village of Wolcott down to about Jeffersonville, which would be over towards Smuggler's Notch Ski Area. Yeah, my old, my old school there. Yeah, so if you're familiar with the, that, that area, that's heading towards Burlington, Essex. And then as you get below there towards Lake Champlain, it's going to start turning more into a bass fishery. Okay. Um, there's some dams along the river, so those are going to, um, in the summertime, they're going to heat up down towards towards Fairfax, um, as you get closer to Lake Arrowhead. But primarily for me, fishing the Lamoille, I spend most of my time between Wolcott and Johnson, so where you went to school. Yeah. There's a lot of tributaries that flow in that feed cold water through the summer. There's an opportunity for the fishermen fishing the Lamoille to catch the trifecta or troutfecta of brook, brown, and rainbow. Neat. Yeah, which is pretty cool for a river in the northeast to support all three species of trout. Yeah. Tip tactic-wise, um, it's not quite as pockety as the Winooski. It's more of a riffle run yep. river. 
you know, Parker and I kind of joke about it, but I'm more of a soft tackle, swinging. Yeah, yeah. It gets lower than the Winooski in the summer. Yeah, the pools aren't as I deep. I remember. I remember it can get low. I yeah. remember it being low when I fished it back in my school days. Yeah, so you're not going to be looking at have, especially in the summer months, using, you know, super heavily weighted flies. The fish are going to see it. Yep. As much as I like fishing, you know, like you talked about with steelhead fishing, the bottom water column, this river I primarily focus mid and upper column. So a sink tip would be, you know, a good choice. A three foot, five foot head. We actually make our own. Okay. So they're shorter than the ones you would typically buy. And you don't need the 15 foot sink tip head. So we'll go with a three foot, five foot head, about 24 to 36 inches of tip, straight tippet material to your fly. Yeah. And then we'll put on a soft tackle in the summer. Through the summer months, July and August, I like doing the hopper dropper. And again, you're not fishing deep water. Mm-hmm. As we get into the fall, we do have you know some blueing olive hatches, so the dry fly fishing picks up again. The thing I like about the Lamoille is it's a little less popular for people to fish. Yeah, you know you don't have as many people with access to it. The Winooski, the Burlington angling community tends to go to the Winooski. It holds a lot of trout. Yep. The Lamoille sees a little bit less angling pressure. I remember one summer I did about sixty-five drift boat trips on the Lamoille. Wow. And in that stretch of 60 plus days, I saw two other fishermen. So you're out there in a beautiful spot. One of my favorite sections to fish on the Lamoille is the stretch down in Johnson. And the reason for that is um, there's a section called Dog's Head Falls. It's got a beautiful set of falls. It's a very narrow section of the river, steep banks on both sides. So the scenery is pretty spectacular yeah. through there. How long have you had the fly rod shop here in Stowe? I actually had a retail shop prior to the fly rod shop. Okay. So um, the fly rod shop goes back 48 years um it was originally part of a company that was started in morrisville vermont which was the diamondback rod company oh yeah diamondback fly rods were manufactured in morrisville and eventually that production facility was moved to stowe when it came to stowe the owner had a retail shop inside the production plant and i think it was in 1993 that the fly rod shop moved across the road to its current location which is where we are today i worked for the fly rod shop back in the late 80s for bill alley who was the owner and then had a little stretch where i went out to jackson hall wyoming lived out west came back At that point, I was trying to get the company to kind of focus more on the guiding component. They were manufacturing rods. They were making their own components, real seats. Their production level was pretty high. And they had a private brand that they had come up with, which was the Diamondback Rod. And I said, Bill, we we should start a fly fishing guide service or fly fishing school. And at that point, he was like, well, people aren't probably going to come up here to fly fish. This is in Montana or Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I went out and started my own business and then eventually ended up buying the company, or not buying Diamondback, but buying the fly rod shop. Okay. So I moved my store which was just up the road in Stowe, to this location. And I've been here now for 17 or 18 years. That's awesome. But That, that but, is awesome. But I started the business about 25 years ago. Phenomenal. It's so awesome to have a, an amazing fly shop like this right oh. here in Stowe. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm so glad it's here, and I'm so glad that it, can, it combines all the 
winter activities like skiing that you have here. And then once you get into spring, summer, and fall, you've got the fly fishing. And there's so much to do here in Stowe besides the fly fishing, as you mentioned. The bike riding, the hiking, canoeing. Tell tell us about some other activities that people can do here in Stowe in the spring, summer, and fall. Well, hiking and mountain biking is probably one of the biggest draws. Stowe Mountain Lodge has trails. Trap Family Lodge has mountain biking, hiking trails. One of my buddies now runs a, a rock climbing business, so that's become really popular. Another good friend of mine for the last 25, 30 years has been running Umiak Outfitters, which is a great canoe livery outfitter. Cool. And they do provide a shuttle service on the rivers. Phenomenal. So what he'll do is refer the anglers to us, and we'll refer the people that want to do the floats to him as far as you know, setting them up with boats. So for people that come up here that want to do that, they can. Waterbury Reservoir, which is a man-made reservoir, is only about four miles from our shop. has boating, three state park entrances. And I will say the smallmouth bass fishing on that lake is probably one of the best in the state. So, you know, for people that are coming up here within 10 or 15 minutes of the shop, there's a lot of stuff to do. Talk about like the Stowe as a whole, because I mean, once you hit Mountain Road and you head up towards Mount Mansfield, I mean, you're in this amazing, quaint village. Yeah, Stowe really started to come onto the map with the ski industry back in the 1940s. So the chairlift was put in, big winter draw. Probably not as much of a summer recreation area back then as it was winter. And then Stowe is probably, I don't know, Parker, what would you say, 2,500 population roughly? Yeah, I think somewhere around 2,700 people. So it's not a very big town. In fact, the village is probably only three blocks. Mm -hmm. Um, But then, as you mentioned, when you veer off of Route 100 onto Route 108, which we refer to as the mountain road, you're heading up about a nine-mile road towards Mount Mansfield. In the summertime, it actually breaks over the mountain through a section called Smuggler's Notch. Smugs! Yeah, Smugs. And you go over the backside into Jeffersonville. In the winter, when they close the notch, it goes from a 15-minute ride to a 45-minute ride because you actually have to go around the entire mountain. Mm -hmm. So Stowe has become a really, really popular, I don't even want to say a summer-winter recreation area i think it's really kind of evolved into a year-round resort yeah our fall is crazy busy yeah gorgeous up um here. spring mud season you know some people might want to stay out of town for that couple of three weeks bury yourself up to the axles on the car but the one thing we tell people if they're looking to come up here our trout season starts the second saturday of april Okay, so you do have an open and close. And our close season still has year-round open trout waters that you can fish, catch and release. It's limited to certain sections that are pretty clearly marked in the Fish and Wildlife Guide. So if you did come up here and you wanted to fish in the winter, it's it's an opportunity that you can take advantage of. But like I said, you got to pretty much pick and choose your days. Well, that kind of leads me into, we're talking about open and close seasons, and we mentioned creel limits earlier, and I do, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I do want to open the dialogue here about Vermont, because this is actually our first podcast about Vermont, and I know there's been some conversation, some board review, if you will, to the creel limits of brook trout being a native species. 
And uh, in Bob, I want to get your viewpoint because I know you're on the board. Vermont has a Fish and Wildlife Board. Right. The Fish and Wildlife Board is the rulemaking body for all the rules and regulations that govern hunting, fishing, and trapping in the state. I was appointed to the board and then was reappointed for a second term. So I actually was on the board for 11 years. 11 years. Now, when you say on the board, how is that like? Is this state run, but then they have a community board or how does that work? It's a great board for the hunting and fishing public. So the way it works is the rules and regulations are generally recommended by the Fish and Wildlife Department. So they take into account the biological data the conservation and management of wildlife species for all the people of the state. The board is a citizen's board that's appointed by the governor, and the board is made up of 14 representatives, one from each county in the state. Oh, okay, so you were the... I was Lamoille County. Lamoille County, you were the representative for the whole county. Correct. So the way it works is if a, if a county sportsman has an issue with what he feels should be a change in any of the rulemaking process for, um, let's just say, fishing. They'll go to their representative, and then we have an obligation to go back to the department and present that to them. They can actually petition the state mm-hmm. to take a look at it. And to your point, on the specifically on the brook trout uh, creel population, um, this hasn't been the first time this conversation's come up. When I was on the board over that 11-year stretch, it was visited by the board, and it was just revisited by the board, and um, I've been off the board now for two years. Okay. Um, so it's come up in the last 13 years. I know it's come up at least two or three times. Well, let's tell our listeners who may not be familiar with the conversation about what we're talking about here, because we're talking about creel limits for both rainbows, brooks, uh, rainbows, browns, and brook trout. Correct. And... The current creel limits for those three species would be what, as far as keeping? Okay, so specifically for trout, you can have 12 in possession. 12 total fish in possession, which 12 of, all 12 can be brook trout. Correct. Or a combination of brook, brown, and rainbow. rainbow. As long as it doesn't exceed 12. And on the rainbow and brown trout, it cannot exceed 6. So some might consider a a creel limit of 12 total fish on a day excessive. And I think some of the controversy or some of the concern is the creel limit for brown is six, but the creel limit for brook trout is 12, where that would be more of a native species. So how does the board kind of go through this process of making these decisions? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it's, and I'm not going to try to make this more complicated than it has to be. Yeah. But we have a statutory obligation through that authority that's assigned to us to weigh in on the public's input, the biological data that the state provides us with, and any social positive or negative feelings that are typically surveyed through the department. They then provide us with that information and we weigh in on that to make the rule. So when you're specifically talking about brook trout creel limits, the state would weigh in on whether or not that has a positive or negative effect on population base. Yeah, We have to take all that data. Typically, I will say the rulemaking process can take upwards of 12 months because once the rule is voted on by the department, 
It then has to go out to the public. And on something as significant as a reduction in creel populations, I will tell you that that would spark a lot of fishing interest. And we would be obligated to probably hold a minimum of five to six public hearings. We have to do that within a certain time period. After we take all that input, we then reweigh in on the department's position, and then we cast a second vote. It then goes to the legislature for review through a committee called LCAR or ICAR, which is the Administrative Committee on Rulemaking, and they make sure that the public has been properly warned and has, a, has had a reasonable opportunity to weigh in on the regulation. They approve our rule, and then it goes back for a third and final vote. Once it's passed on the third vote, it would become law or it would be rejected. Yep. If it became law, then it would go into the digest the next year. Okay. So it's a pretty lengthy process. It's yeah. not easy. So what are your thoughts on 12 fish uh, being brook trout? I know and where the six would be on the brown. We were talking earlier that you may even agree with that stance. Or... Okay. So now which hat do I put on? Okay. All right. So I've got to put on two different hats in the answering the question. In fairness to the position I've had as a board member. Yeah. And in fairness to the career I've had as a fishing guide. Yeah. So from a personal standpoint, I think the 12 fish creel limit for brook trout or in combination of all three species is a very generous creel limit. Yeah. I personally like eating fish. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people in the fly fishing community prefer to release them. But we have to take a look at a regulation for all of the sportsmen and there are quite a few people that like eating trout. Yeah. So when you talk about brook trout populations, because it's typically a smaller sized fish to a rainbow and brown, some people would consider a 12 fish limit to be fairly reasonable. Others think it has a negative effect on population base. So the department's responsibility to the board is to take a look at those population bases. And as a conservation division of the state, they're responsible for protecting populations based on habitat. So the department's position, so now I'm taking off my angling hat and saying, well, I think 12 fish is is pretty generous. So if it was reduced, I actually made a recommendation as a board member when I served for 11 years to reduce the population to six total creel and no more than six brook trout. I was fortunate enough to have a second board member second my motion and it was it came up for vote and it was rejected by the board. And I was given an opportunity to weigh in on it. I thought I did a pretty good job presenting my opinion and not just trying to voice my opinion, but provide the board with some reasonable data on why I thought the population base could be reduced to six fish. Having said all that, the department's position is that a 12 Brook trout limit has no negative effect on population base. Yeah, because you were talking about that, that there's historical data for, you mentioned back almost 40 years, that shows based on our data, we have the same amount of trout with these creel limits. Yeah, so here's, here's what I think is great information for the angling community. The Fish and Wildlife Department, I think it was, and I may be off on the on the year, but 1940, maybe it was 45, the department took up a um, pretty bold approach to electroshocking fish, checking creel limits, and they set different benchmarks in the state where they picked rivers that had wild trout populations, surveyed those rivers, and have continued to do that over the last six or seven decades. So they have 
the biological data to support their opinion. Now, some people in the angling community would say, well, populations of angling pressure on those rivers over a 40, 50, or 60-year period have changed. Population bases move. Right. Interest changes. So, statistically, you can weigh in on either side of that, but at least we have something to measure it by. Yeah. And that's critical when you're managing population base. So having said that, the department holds a position based on the data that they've collected over the years, and that indicates that the populations are stable in Vermont. So if that's the case, what measures whether or not we should increase or decrease population creel limits on fish that we keep? And the state's opinion is that it goes to a social component, which means the angling community either accepts or rejects the generosity of how many fish you feel someone should keep. And when you think about it, back in the 40s and 50s, with less tourism in the state of Vermont, a lot of people that were fishing back then were probably eating fish to live on. They hunted to live. So in today's world, you know, that's not necessarily the case. So from a social standpoint, I think there are people out there now that say, well, I'm not going to keep 12 fish. I don't need them to eat them and survive on it. So why do we need to kill 12 brook trout? And to your point, because it's a native population, there's a a legitimate argument for the sporting community to say, well, let's at least have a, a more protective social respect for a native population over an introduced population. And rainbows and brown trout are not native to Vermont. Right. And that's why I think when you look at the creel limit, it seems a bit off that you're protecting brown trout at six more than you're protecting brook trout at 12. That's and, that's the argument. Yeah, and it's and another point to that argument is that the state stocks the rivers. Right. They stock a lot of rainbows and brown trout, and their overwhelming opinion of that stocked fishery program is basically a put and take. Yeah. So we'll put them in, we'll raise them for people, and we're more than happy to let you take them out. So we're protecting, to your point, a population base of of non-native fish, and they're also, for the most, well, not for the most part, but for a significant part, they're they're actually stocked. Yeah. So have at it. Sure, sure. So again, my personal opinion is I would have loved to have seen a reduction in population base, but when I weigh in, you know, as a board member on the biological data, you've got the argument for those that definitely want to keep it the same to say, well, there's no negative impact on population base, so let's just keep it where it is. And the the last question, and we can move on to some other topics besides creel limits. Have you heard or is there any conversation regarding size? For instance, if there was a more of a catch and release, I know a lot of people catch and release regardless of the creel limit. They're, you know, I practice catch and release. I'm not going to keep 12 fish. But if the creel limit or the state would run a catch and release, even though the populations aren't decreasing, do you think you would see a larger fish? Potentially. So here's my opinion on that. With the brook trout populations, because they live in a rougher environment, they're mostly in your upland mountain rivers. It's a harsh environment. Pool sizes are smaller. Aquatic insect life is significantly less than the main stem rivers. A six-year-old brook trout may only get to eight or 10 inches in size. Yeah. So the goldfish in the goldfish bowl grows to a certain size. You throw it in the backyard pond and it turns into a carp. 
Yeah. I'm not sure. My personal opinion is Vermont Fisheries Division could do a better job in providing different angling opportunities for the watersheds within the state. So in other words, catch and release sections. Yeah. We have thousands of miles of trout rivers in Vermont. So to ask the department to offer the angling community a catch and release section or a limited kill or a slot limit, as you're saying, with, with size restriction, I think would be a better way of micromanaging your populations for the angling community because there are people that come in the shop every day in the summer that are from out of state and they say well i want to go out and fish for a half a day just point me in the direction of your catch and release water because that has a certain image of quality a more more protective fishery yeah and guys want to go there right of course and we turn around and say well i do too but there isn't any so we're kind of caught between that population of angling pressure where the state says well why should we restrict a section when we don't see a ton of fishing pressure to begin with i mean we're a small populated state right having said all that overall vermont because of the low fishing pressure, doesn't see a lot of effect on population base. Yeah. But in today's angling community, there's a lot more people that are more interested in those social regulations. Right. Right. And to your point, you were saying this kind of one law and it governs the entire state rather than having some selective areas that may be catch and release or maybe artificial lures or such and such and or yeah. fly fishing only. Right. And we do have some now, but it's only been in the last four or five years that that's happened. So there is more conversation going around about this. Absolutely. Good. I didn't want to put you on the hot seat. It wasn't meant to be a hot seat question. It was more of just to hear your perspective because I did see in your resume or in your bio on your website that you were part of the board. And I know I've seen some of these conversations regarding native fish and I did want to get your perspective on it being right up here in the area. And the people that are in the fly fishing world or the hunting world, they're all passionate about their sport. Yeah. So from my standpoint, having been a guide, fished for 30 years in Vermont, and then having an opportunity to be seated on the board, that was probably the best experience of my life. That's amazing. So That's, That's great. What about some of the guiding opportunities that you have here, Parker? I know we talked about the do-it-yourself aspect to both of the Winooski and the Lamoille. Parker, tell us a little bit about what happens here if somebody wants to come in on a guided trip. Yeah, I mean, so we do a ton of guided trips every summer. We start, in, you know, at some point in April or May guiding. We have a lot of people coming up, coming to Stowe. They're on vacation. They're, they may not necessarily be here to go fly fishing. Okay. But they're looking for something to do in town. They see, oh, the fly rod shop. Let's check them out. So that sign out front helps. Yeah, big time. We do free casting classes from May through the end of September, twice a week on the pond here at the shop. And that's a great introduction to someone that's maybe not even passionate about fly fishing or has never even thought about it before, but... Wants to try it. Yeah, they want to give it a try. You know, that's a really good introduction for them. And that often gets the ball rolling into, oh, well, can we book a guide now? And yeah, we, you know, we've got plenty of guides available. We've got six or seven guides that work here throughout the summer. Right. Running trips. And we do a little bit of everything. We do, you know, a lot of bigger river fishing early in the season. As the water temps warm up, we often do, we do a fair amount of bass fishing, both lakes, ponds, and rivers. Yep. And then brook trout. We can't get enough of brook trout. And a lot of our clients love, they love catching a six inch fish on a dry fly on a two weight. And that's cool. Yeah. 
that's a, a lot of fun. And I think for beginners too, just the fact that the brook trout populations, you know, although we do have the 12 fish limit, the brook trout populations around here are really high. Yeah. And it's nothing to take someone that's never picked up a fly rod before. And they might go catch a dozen fish and have 20 or 30 eat their fly, you know, over the course of a few hours. So, And that's not a fish story. that's pretty awesome though yeah absolutely and so would that be like the same rivers that you were talking about would it be on the winooski lamoille or more so on the smaller tributaries of those rivers you do see some brook trout in the the main sections of those rivers and like bob was saying you know the lamoille i think you see a few more brook trout in but it's primarily on you know much smaller mountain sized streams you know you can roll cast across the stream no problem And so that's where you'd be taking your clients if they, if they want that brook trout. Yeah, exactly. We we have a lot of clients that are like, take us where you would go fishing if you weren't working today. Yeah. And a lot of our guides are, they're going to want to go brook trout fishing just because we've got so many spots to go catch brook trout. You know, I think for someone that has does not have that fly fishing experience, being able to go catch fish and see fish come up and eat a dry fly. That's cool. That positive reinforcement is going to keep them coming back and pursuing fly fishing as, you know, something they can continue to do after that guided trip's over. That's cool. And now, Bob, kind of stepping outside of this whole greater Stowe area, you actually run a lot of guided trips in other parts of the world, including back from your home area, the Ontario tributaries of, like, say, Pulaski or all kinds of tributaries through Ontario. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do in that regard? Okay. Well, typically, it's a spring-fall fishery program for what I do. Um, We're mainly targeting the migratory run out of Lake Ontario. So this would be like in New York? Correct. It's basically along the sections between Watertown and Oak Orchard, which is a couple of two and a half, three hour section yep. of the shoreline of Lake Ontario. So in the spring, we're targeting primarily steelhead. In the fall, we're also targeting steelhead, but there's also an opportunity for Chinook, coho salmon. So the fall fishing, I used to guide over Cohos. there. Cohos. Yeah, which is an awesome fish to catch. I mean, I know about the Chinook or the Kings. Yeah. You can catch coho up there? That's one of the least stocked fish in the Great Lakes tributary or Great Lakes, but the Salmon River, they actually imprint those fish to return into the Salmon River. So those are smaller size Pacific strain salmon, mm. but as we like to refer to them as they're, the, they're not the king or Chinook, but they're on steroids. Okay. So you hook one of these fish in the fall and it's going to be maybe a smaller sized fish than you would catch if it was a king, but those fish are going to challenge everything in your terminal tackle box. I usually, I used to guide there about 100 to 145 days a year. Amazing, huh? Yeah, and it was a great way for me to fill my summer off season, you know, into the fall and winter. Yep. When it would end here in Stowe. I've cut back this year. I'll probably only do about 40 to 60 trips there. So not quite as aggressive. And I'm primarily targeting steelhead at this point, which I think is one of the best species to catch. Oh, it's so fun. Atlantic salmon and steelhead have infected my brain <laughs> as they do many of us yeah so steelhead are a addictive fish oh if you hook one you're done yeah because you catch one and like it's one of those fishes like you're on the way home yeah so you go on a fishing trip to catch a steelhead to catch a steelhead and on the way home the only thing you're thinking about is how can you free up days <laughs> in your life in the coming weeks right. to do this all over again yeah, and the nice thing about steelhead in Lake Ontario for the Salmon River is when they come in in the fall to feed, the food source is so abundant there that those fish 
partial winter over. So for the hardcore, super cold weather, you know, I don't care. I'm just going fishing. Yeah. That's a fishery that you can go. And to your point, it's for many people that go there, it's probably a fish of a lifetime. Yeah, it's so fun. So I was fortunate when I grew up just outside of the Syracuse area in Clinton, New York. Not to say I was spoiled, but think about it. I'm a high school-aged kid, and I'm catching trout in a river that are upwards of 18 pounds. Mm -hmm. And that's my exposure to river fishing. Yes. And then I go to another river, and I'm like, well, that's a nice 15-inch trout, but yeah. it's only 15 inches. <laughs> that's bait. Yeah, it's bait. <laughs> so anyway, I've been guiding over there for literally 30 years. And then um, over the career of guiding, I've been able to host trips or run trips to South America, the Caribbean, Labrador, Alberta. So I fished in a lot of what we would consider some of the best fisheries in the world. And I will tell people that the Lake Ontario fishery is one of the best fisheries in the world. No question. Yeah. I love it. You know, I think the reason I go back there isn't, you know, necessarily because I need another day to guide. It's because I have to go steelhead guiding. Yeah, it's fun. And I love having a client hook that fish. There's nothing like it. And Erie, too. I like Erie as well. Yeah. They both have their unique aspects of what uh, I think maybe a little bigger over in Ontario, yeah. maybe a little bit more plentiful, although Ontario's plentiful as well. But Erie seems like if you're a new steelhead fisherman, brand new, those fish can be cooperative. Yeah. I mean, they can be over in uh, Ontario as well. But Yeah, but they're pressured there. Yeah. And what's nice about Ontario, where you are, though, is the opportunity for the multiple species where Erie, you're pretty much going to be catching steelhead. And then as you get into the spring, maybe a smallmouth, but a lot more opportunities for, like you say, the Chinook or the Coho and... Um, giant browns. Giant browns. That's what I was trying to get to. Yeah, yeah, the giant browns. They have beautiful brown trout. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they're living in the lake. They're feeding, eating large and every fall they make that migratory run and you've got a chance to catch literally 15 to 20 pounds of brown trout on the, on those rivers well guys it seems like you've got a pretty cool deal up here in stowe it's with going the, good the skiing and then the fishing around stowe area you've got the guiding over there and the tributaries of new york and then taking clients and hosting them around the world well guys it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show why don't you tell hey, rob one yeah. last question before we do that um how are your thighs feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting old. I need to do a little bit more prep before next year's ski season. I put in uh, over a dozen days this year, but my thighs are, it wasn't bad. It was half a day. It was a little, little burning, a little burning. Uh, I, well, if it doesn't burn, it's, you know, it's not worth it, right? So for sure. I just it, thought I'd ask. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was a fun day on the, on the mountain for sure, but I did want to give our listeners an opportunity to connect with you. What is the best way that people can find out more if they want to come up and do a guide date, if they want to come up and buy some flies, or even just to come up and get some information where they can do a do-it-yourself opportunity, Bob? How can they connect with you? Flyrodshop.com. That's pretty easy. <laughs> Flyrodshop.com. Now, do you do any online sales or is that just more of an informational no, page? No, we do both. We What drives people to our website is definitely the information aspect and the guiding, but we do have products on the website. Okay, cool. And we've got a nice retail shop here for people. If they come up, don't worry about bringing it. We have it all. 
Yeah, and even you have a, um, we're in your outfitting room here, you have all the rods and waders and wading boots. So if somebody just wanted to come up and do some mountain biking and didn't want to bring any gear, they can still go out in a day. Absolutely. Rent equipment or just uh, have us take them. Guys, thank you so much. Flyrodshop.com. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Fly Fishing Journeys with your host, Rob Giannino. To be notified of new episodes, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. For past episodes, check out flyfishingjourneys.com. Fly fishing is a journey, and we're glad you're on this journey with us.